it is a joy to be with you. I'm bummed that uh, Connie is not doing well this week, but I do think she's getting better. Is that right, Brandon? Yeah. So I think I got to thinking about this. This may be my last time to preach in this building. Um, yeah, which I think is good for everybody here. So I drive by the place at 13th and Grove probably two or three times a week, and I'm getting excited for you guys to be in that place. It looks like the construction is coming along well, and hopefully next time I'm with you, um, it will be in that building. Well, uh, I talked with Brandon on Thursday, and we determined that I would be here with you this morning, but I didn't have time to get something ready in all of Exodus 20 through 23, so we're not going to be in Exodus this morning. If you want a wonderful sermon on that, you can leave here and drive over to First Free um, right after this, and Mike Andrus has put together a wonderful um, sermon on that particular passage. But this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to celebrate the Reformation. I don't know if you know it, but this morning is Reformation Sunday. Most of you here consider October 31st to be what? To be Halloween. But for Protestant Christians, there is something more appropriate to celebrate on October 31st. Let me explain. November 1st, you may or may not know, is what the Roman Catholic Church calls All Saints Day. Or in the old language, All Saints. Hallows Day. It's the day within their Christian year where they celebrate all of the saints known and unknown who have lived throughout all of history. But the feast of All Hallows Day usually begins the night before on what is called All Hallows Eve, hence where we get the word Halloween. Well, in the 16th century in Germany, there was a man named Martin Luther. And on All Hallows' Eve, he nailed his famous 95 theses to the castle door at the University of Wittenberg. Now, some people think that Luther was wanting to rebel against the Catholic Church and leave the Catholic Church, but that was never actually his intention. He simply wanted to engage in a scholarly debate over the practice of indulgences. But this debate sparked a fire within Germany and later in all of Europe that led to the Reformation. And so that's why on October 31st, Protestant Christians for centuries have celebrated it as Reformation Day. But why should we why should we observe Reformation Day and celebrate it as a church? I believe it is simply for this reason, that during the Reformation, the gospel of Jesus Christ was recovered. It had almost been completely obscured in the 16th century by the Roman Catholic Church, but it was recovered in that century. The central truths of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, Amen. not by works, through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. 
Those are the truths that were recovered during the Reformation, and that is why we celebrate. Now, when many of you think of the Reformation, you think of guys like Martin Luther in Germany, rightfully so. Or maybe um, you think of guys like John Calvin in Geneva. Or maybe you even think, if you know a little bit more about church history, of Zwingli in Switzerland. But did you know that there was also a Reformation in the 16th century within England? And that Reformation actually has had probably more of an effect on us and the English-speaking world and the way that we worship and the way that we view the gospel. The Reformation in England. Any of you guys like to watch volleyball or tennis? Have some of you been watching tennis? The Reformation in England was kind of like a really tense game of volleyball or of tennis where power kept going back and forth between the Catholic Church and the Protestants and then later between the Church of England and the Puritans. And a lot of really nasty stuff was done during a hundred-year period in the name of God. 19, or not 19... 1547, a man you may know named Henry VIII died, and his son, Edward VI, took the throne. Henry had already left the Roman Catholic Church, but the church was still largely Catholic in its doctrine. But under Edward, all of this changed. England became decisively Protestant during this time. But, you know, this volleyball match, this tennis match is going on, and that didn't last for very long, because Edward in 1553 died, and his sister Mary took the throne. Mary was staunchly Catholic. She led England back into the Roman Catholic Church. And any who did not adopt Roman Catholicism during her reign, guess what? They were burned at the stake. Over 300 Protestants during Mary's reign were tied to the stake and burned to death. That's how she got the title, Bloody Mary. The name for the drink came afterward. She got it first. Now, I want to focus your attention this morning on three men who were killed under Bloody Mary's reign. Hugh Latimer, also Nicholas Ridley, and Thomas Cramner. All of them were burned at the stake in 1555. Latimer was a gifted gospel preacher. Ridley was the Bishop of London. And many of you may be more familiar with Thomas Cramner, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. All three of these men were instrumental in the Reformation. But when their time of testing came they didn't all respond in the same way. And this is where I want you to begin to listen up. Ridley and Latimer, when their time of testing came, they stood strong for the gospel. But when Cramner's time of testing came, he folded and didn't stand strong. He publicly renounced his faith in the gospel. So what I want to do is three things this morning. This is an unusual type of sermon for me, I'm going to begin by looking at the lives of these three men. So it's going to be like an extended introduction. You've just got the introduction. We're going to have like introduction part two. 
And then in the second part, I want to look at 2 Timothy 1 and ask the question, what enables us today to stand for the gospel? So that's where I'll do my exposition, which is what I normally do. And then at the end, we'll consider how all of this applies to us today. So looking at an ancient text in 2 Timothy 2,000 years ago, the story of reformers over 500 years ago, well, how does all of that apply to us today in the 21st century? So let's begin with this story of the three men. Everybody in England at that time knew who Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley were. They were leaders in the church, big-named people. So like if you were to think in our day of who are the biggest-named preachers in the day, whoever comes to mind, that's what those guys were like during their time. So Mary wanted to make an example out of these leaders. So she brought all of them to stand trial in Oxford, England. You've heard of Oxford University. That's the place where she brought them to trial in 15. 55. According to John Fox in his famous Book of Martyrs, they were on trial for one reason and one reason alone, and it had to do with their view of the Lord's Supper. For Catholics, then as now, the Lord's Supper is the source and the summit of the Christian life. That's coming straight out of the Roman Catholic Church's catechism today. It is the source and the summit of the Christian life. Why? Because for Catholics, they believe that the real presence of Christ is present within the Lord's Supper. They believe that Christ is present. That when the priest says the words of institution over the bread and over the cup, you know the words. When he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. That at that very moment, the Catholics believe that those elements actually become, the bread becomes the body of Christ, and the wine becomes the blood of Christ. So the priest in the Roman Catholic Church is taking these elements, the very sacrifice of Christ, and he's representing them within the altar right then and there. They also believe that you have to take the Lord's Supper in order to be saved. The body and the blood of Christ received in the Lord's Supper infuses grace within your spiritual person. It enables you. It's like a shot. You get a shot of, of grace that enables you um, to participate with God within your salvation and eternal life. It sanctifies you. It justifies you. And they believe that all of this happens irrespective of whether or not a person believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when the reformers are put on trial, that's what the Catholics believed then, that's what they believe now. I'm not, I'm not I'm trying to speak disparagingly, I'm just letting you know what they believed. And so... When Ridley and Latimer and Cranmer are put on trial in Oxford, what, they, or what they're trying to figure out is, do you believe this or not? If you believe all of this doctrine about the Lord's Supper, you can be spared. But if you don't, you're going to burn. That's what was at stake. 
So when Ridley and Latimer were put on trial, they adamantly denied that the natural body and blood of Christ were present in the sacrament. So they were sentenced to death. They were bound back to back at the stake. This is maybe not the greatest picture in the world, but it gives you a little bit of an idea of how this happened. The two guys were put back to back and burned there. When Ridley um, saw Latimer coming, because Ridley was tied up first, he gave his last words um, to Latimer. He said, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flames or else he will strengthen us to abide it. But what about Latimer's last words? Latimer's last words are so famous today. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century great preacher, said that his last words were like a blast of a trumpet which rings even to this day. What were those words? He says, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it is not been put out. Latimer was an old man, about 80, and he died quickly. Ridley, his death took a lot longer because they didn't arrange the wood at his feet right. And so all of his lower extremities were completely burned off before the fire could get to his vital organs and take his life. Each man, each of the two men, as they were dying, burning alive, said as Christ did, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. We've got some of our football players here with us this morning, and one of the things that the coach always says is, guys, you don't have to play perfect, but I want to know that you've left it all on the field, right? These guys left it all on on the field for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Was their death worth it? Why did, why did they not just deny that the bread and the wine turned into the blood and body of Christ? I mean, did it really matter if they just for a moment would deny it? Why did they not deny that Christ's sacrifice was represented in the supper? Why did they say that the Lord's Supper must be received by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Was it really worth leaving everything on the field? Their very lives? Well, they believed that it was. But I want you to know something. This was not just because these guys were rebels. We live in a culture where a rock and roll attitude or a hip-hop attitude of being against the man is really celebrated. But these guys weren't just against the Pope. They weren't simply trying to rebel for the sake of rebellion. These people believed that what was happening in the Roman Catholics' view of the Lord's Supper did violence to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. If Christ had to be 
sacrificed again, or if his sacrifice had to be represented within the Lord's Supper, then how could the perfect, sufficient, and once-for-all sacrifice also be true as the Bible says that it is? If Christ's body is present on the altar, then how can Christ also be seated at the right hand of God the Father as the Bible says that it is? If you have to take the Lord's Supper in order to be saved, then salvation is by works and not by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as the Bible says that it is. The reason that Ridley and Latimer were willing to be burned is not because they had rebellious hearts or because they were just being sticklers over some secondary matter of Christian doctrine. They were willing to be burned because they believed that the very gospel of Jesus Christ was at stake. What about Cramner? Cramner was tried five months later. Unfortunately, he actually was at the window witnessing Latimer and Ridley burning to death. And so in the end, he lost his courage. The people that had him on trial twisted his arm to recant his Protestant convictions, and he did so in writing. But even though he recanted, Mary knew that he was too dangerous of a man, and she wanted to make an example out of him, so she decided she'd go ahead and put him to death anyway. But her plan backfired. For after this all came to be, Latimer, at the last minute, decided to do what was already in his heart to do. And so he recanted of his recantation in the end. And this is what he said. I come to the great thing that troubleth my conscience more than any other thing that I ever said or did in my life. Feel the regret. And that is setting abroad of writings contrary to the truth, which here now I renounce and refuse, is things written with my hand contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death and to save my life. And forasmuch as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall be first punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And that is what happened. As the fire was kindled at his feet, Cramner stretched out his right arm and put it into the flame. Only once, we are told by Fox, reaching it to wipe the sweat from his brow. Eventually, his hand was burned to a stump and then his whole body. Why do I share this story? Wasn't the other one more inspiring about Ridley and Latimer? I think it's for this reason. I think most of us here relate more to Cramner than we do to Ridley and to Latimer. We want to stand for the gospel. We want to be faithful and bold in sharing the gospel with our friends and our family members, but at times we waffle 
back and forth. We're afraid. We're ashamed. We're afraid of what people will think of us, I think is the main thing. And maybe even sometimes what they might do to us if we stand up for the gospel. So is suffering for the gospel worth it? And if so, what will put steel in our spine to enable us to do what we have been called to do? How can we have a burning passion like the English reformers? I think we get an answer to that in 2 Timothy 1, our passage for this morning. So if you would turn there. So a long introduction and a shorter exposition. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. I think that you'll see in this passage why standing for the gospel is important and what will motivate us to do so. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read verses 8 to 12 of 2 Timothy 1. <clears throat> This is what God's Word says. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this passage is divided into three short and simple parts. The first, we're given two commands to stand for the gospel. And the second, we're given a theological motivation to stand. And in the third, we're given a very tangible motivation. Paul's own Example. The two commands do not be ashamed of the gospel, share in suffering for the gospel. We know that Timothy was called to preach the gospel. You go back to 1 Timothy 4, we see this was a gift that was given to him. But here's the thing even though he was gifted, even though he was called, he was chicken, he was timid. We see that in the first chapter, uh, if you look at the paragraph above in 2 Timothy chapter 1. That's why Paul starts out in verse 7 by telling him, God didn't give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. Timothy's ministry at Ephesus was kind of like the English reformers' ministry that was opposed by Mary. There were people who were teaching a false gospel and bullying those who didn't go for it. There were some people who were threatening the gospel with legalism. What is legalism? Legalism is saying that certain works are required to be saved instead of just 
grace in Jesus Christ. This totally flies in the face of the gospel. It's not what we do that saves us. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ. As, as you guys saw in the Ten Commandments last week, sure, there are things that we are called to do, but those things don't save us. God brought Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, before He gave them the Ten Commandments to live under. It's a distinction that is very fine, but we can't miss it. We're not saved by what we do. We are saved by what God has done in Jesus Christ. Mess that up, and you mess up the entire Christian religion. There were also people at Ephesus who didn't want to endure sound teaching. We're told in chapter 4. They had itching ears. They wanted preachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. It's not much that has changed. And so for timid Timothy, can you imagine what it would be like? You've got false teaching. You've got people bullying you. You've got people that are saying, we want you to preach this. That he would be timid and tempted to do that. He's afraid that if he confronts these false teachers, it may lead to suffering. I don't think they burned people at the stake back then, but it could have meant his life. And so Paul is trying to put steel in his spine to admonish him to not be chicken, to not be afraid of the gospel, but to suffer for it. But why would he want to? What would enable him to do that? And the same goes for us. Why should we not be ashamed of the gospel? Why should we be willing to suffer for the gospel? Well, we get a hint of it. The very first verse of this letter, that it's the gospel alone that brings life. That's why throughout this letter, Paul is saying to Timothy, He's saying, you have to understand just how critical the preservation of the message of salvation by grace is. You have to guard it, we're told in verse 14. You have to protect it from false teachers. You have to proclaim it to the nations. And you have to pass it on to the next generation because it and it alone will bring life and salvation. But how could timid Timothy be motivated to stand? I think there are two motivations listed in this passage. Like I said, the first is theological. The reason to stand for the gospel is because of the truths that flow from the gospel. Look at verse 10. Paul says that through the gospel of our Savior Christ Jesus, that death has been abolished, and that life and immortality have been brought to life. What's his logic? He's saying that through the gospel, we don't have to fear death. Or maybe as Martin Luther said in his famous hymn, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So here's the thing. You may be persecuted for the gospel to the point of death, but you have eternal life through what the gospel brings. Yeah. 
so you don't have to fear death. Christ suffered unto death that we may be forgiven of our sins. But He didn't stay in the grave, friends. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who follow after Him, they will go the way that He went, which involves suffering. But it also involves glory. It may involve death, but it certainly involves resurrection. The hope for the future that is secure in Christ is what enables us to be bold and strong in the present. Friends, I may some days, but today I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. I want to say to you very clearly today that your only hope in life and in death is found in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because every one of us in this room this morning are sinners. We are rebels against the King of Kings. We have transgressed or broken His law laid out in the Ten Commandments that you learned about last week and in all other kinds of commandments written in the Bible. And as sinners against a holy God, we deserve His just judgment. We deserve eternal death for violating the commands of of an eternal God. We are, as Ephesians says, without hope and without God in this world if we are without Christ. But if we trust in Christ that He died in our place for our sins, then we can be forgiven of our sins and we can be given eternal life now and an eternal life to look forward to in the future. It is through Him that we can be saved and through Him alone. Put it another way, as you've been learning in Exodus, we can be made holy. We can be set apart or sanctified by Christ. You see, in the Catholic Church on November 1st, they're going to celebrate all kinds of super-Christians that they call saints. But did you know that for every person, no matter how lowly they are in the world's eyes or even in the church's eyes, if they trust in Christ, they are saints. You can become a saint today through your faith in Christ. And if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, listen to me. You don't have to fear man. If God is on your side, what can man do to you? You have life and immortality. And that's the first motivation you need to go and to share this good news with others. The second comes from Paul's own example in verses 11 and 12. I don't know if you caught this. I I love Bible study because the Bible is just the best book, the best literature aside from being the Word of God that you'll ever see. The commands. You don't be afraid of the Gospel. Suffer for the Gospel. And then he tells us about this powerful Gospel. And then Paul in his own example says, that's why I suffer. That's why I'm not ashamed. He's not saying, do what I say, not what I do. 
He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. He knew that even though he was entrusted with the gospel, called to guard the gospel, that it was ultimately God who would protect it and guard it until Christ returned. But in the meantime, Paul wanted Timothy to follow his example. He wanted him to suffer and to not be ashamed of the gospel. Friends, discipleship is at its core about you following Jesus. It's about following the God-man. Not man, first and foremost. But there's this pattern laid out in Scripture that a disciple of Jesus Christ will also follow people in their lives who are discipling them. We are motivated by the examples of those who put their faith into practice. Don't you know that that is true? That's why it is so important. If you are here this morning and you don't have somebody that's further along in the faith than you, that you are watching, that you are following, that you are seeking counsel from, you need that. And if you are a man or a woman who is further along in the faith, not that you've arrived, none of us have, but you need to be looking for somebody to bring along after you with humility, but yet confidence to say, follow me as I follow Jesus. You should have a life worth looking at if you're further along in the faith. It's also why it's important to read church history. If I can, as a moderate academic, say that to all of you. We need to remember people like the English Reformers. Doesn't that excite you? Doesn't that make you want to run after their example? They believed in the gospel and believed it was worth protecting. Their examples give us courage to persevere in the faith. So what have we learned here? Only the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, saves us and gives us eternal life. But because it saves us and gives us eternal life, it is worth suffering for and not to be ashamed of. So how does all of this apply to us today? Well, Like Timothy before us, like the English reformers before us, we are called to guard the gospel. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. We have to protect it. We have to proclaim it. We have to pass it on to the next generation. But we live in a day when this precious gospel is under attack. It is under attack. Obviously, the views of the Roman Catholic Church that I mentioned earlier about the Lord's Supper are alive and well. But not many of us are dealing with that, are we? We're dealing with different attacks to the gospel and the culture that we live in that we have to protect and stand up for. We live in a day where this sin that I mentioned earlier, that I said all of you have, and that I have as well, we don't really want to talk about that in church. Let's just talk about the good things. Let's keep things positive. I mean, sure, nobody's perfect. But to say you are a sinner in the sight of a holy God, and therefore you deserve His just and eternal punishment... That's not a very popular truth today. 
But friends, the good news of Jesus Christ makes no sense if you don't understand this bad news. If you're not a sinner under judgment, then why does it matter that Jesus died to pay for your sins? We have to preserve the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth with the help of God. We have to preach sin and judgment if we are going to preach grace and eternal life. Friends, we also live in a day where the truths that we are saved through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone are called into question. What are people saying today? There are many ways to God. Don't get all exclusive on me. Don't act like you've got the corner on the market of truth. But friends, the Bible says emphatically that there's only one way to God. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. What does it go on to say? No one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel is for everybody. It's all-inclusive. But the way to God is exclusive. It is through Jesus and Him alone. If you protect that truth, I can assure you that you will be opposed in this culture. I think you know what I'm talking about. You felt it. Or at least I should say, you felt it if you've even attempted to bear witness for Jesus. If you're just kind of fitting in, maybe you haven't. But try standing up for Jesus. Try talking about sin and judgment. Try talking about Jesus being the only way, and you will feel it. You will feel it when you try to share the gospel with your friend or your neighbor. You will feel it. When you ask a question of that college professor who is questioning or undermining or even making fun of Christianity, you'll feel it when you're invited to go to a party where Christ is not honored. In those moments, you may relate to Timothy just a bit. You may lose your courage like Cramner. But in those moments, those are the moments when we can't be timid, when we can't let our courage fail, we must stand up for the gospel. We must stand up for the gospel because the gospel preserved and intact is the only gospel that saves and brings life to other people. And the reason we can stand is because we know that even though we may receive rejection from those that we share the gospel with, that we have received the acceptance of God the Father. So let me ask you a question this morning. Whose favor are you looking for? Do you really believe that who you are and what you have in Jesus is worth suffering for and that you don't need to be ashamed? Paul wasn't ashamed. Ridley and Latimer certainly weren't ashamed. But friends, the Christian faith is not just about the super-Christians. It's about day in and day out, you and me and our families following after Jesus 
not being ashamed of the gospel. God, help us. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a burning passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so easy to want to fit in. It's so easy to not want to be offensive. And we don't want to do any of that because of our stupidity. But when it comes to the truth, we want to be men and women, boys and girls who are willing to stand up. But we know that we need your help. We believe this all in our head, but sometimes it hadn't quite made the 18 inches down to our heart. And so I pray that these truths that I doubt many here disagree with, that we would grow in a deeper awareness of them, that would change the way that we think, the way we feel, the way that we act. We want you to be glorified and honored in our lives. I also pray for any here who have not yet surrendered their life to Jesus. They're still holding out that you would break their heart, but then you would build them back up with the comfort that comes from the gospel, knowing that Christ has provided a way for them to know you, the eternal God. We pray you would work in them this day and that you would work through us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.